Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. The difference is that instead of showing them the visuals, you let them imagine the visuals. And in some ways, it's it's even more powerful because it requires a, a work on their part. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 43. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. This show has now been running for about 16 months. Back in July, you'll remember we went to a weekly format, which effectively doubled our output per month. You know, we, we basically combined the two separate shows we've been doing a month and made it into one single episode you know, with a segment hosted by myself, followed by a shared conversation with the doc industry guest. And now, of course, sandwiched in between these two segments, we added the Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week segment. A big part of my desire with this show has been to reach out to you guys with these episodes, produce some hopefully valuable content, and have conversations with interesting and appropriate guests in a way that inspires and motivates you guys to to get out there and, and produce some amazing films and live your documentary lives to the fullest. Another hope that I've had with this show, and I've certainly expressed it a number of times here on the air, is my goal of getting this documentary community better networked and better connected. And to that extent, I've been somewhat successful. I do email with a number of you fairly regularly. You know, we're sharing one another's social media posts. Um, I'm talking about some of your projects here on the show. But I would be lying if I, I if I didn't tell you I'm certainly hoping for even more in terms of this, this community building aspect of all of this. And this is not what today's show is about per se. That's for later on. I do have some more ideas for, for more and, and better community building that I'll share when the time is right. But today, I'd like to ask you some questions. I'd like to know a little bit more about you guys. I, I'm realizing now, again, 16 months in, I don't really know a ton about you guys. Sure, you know, like I said, I do have some email dialogue with a number of you, and and I've shared some of these stories here on TDL, but I feel like I need to know a hell of a lot more about who you guys are. I've certainly talked enough about me and my story on this show, probably too much, and and so I'd really appreciate learning a little bit more about, about who you guys are. And so when we come back from the break, I've got some questions I'd like to run by you, and I do hope that you'll be open to answering some of these and directly sharing with me via email or our website or the Documentary Life Facebook page. If you're anything like me, you appreciate a good checklist. I've got all kinds of checklists in my life. Every night, I'm creating my to-do list for the next day. Whenever we go camping, I have a camping checklist. Whenever I go out on a shoot, I have a checklist with all of the gear, shots, and b-roll that I'll need. So one day, I thought to myself, why not some kind of checklist for doc filmmakers? And so I came up with one. 
It's called the, the Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist, and it's completely free to any doc filmmaker who wants to learn the essential aspects of making a documentary film in the modern day industry. I am all about empowering documentary filmmakers, and this course does just that. It is my sincere hope that this free course will help make your doc film's journey truly the exhilarating and rewarding experience that it can and should be. Enroll today for free by going to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses. One of the things that we talk about here on the show is what we're all doing with our lives, you know, meaning how are we financially sustaining ourselves in a way that allows us to pursue our documentary films. I was recently on a drive back up, up to Portland after shooting a gig down in Klamath Falls. I mentioned this in my last podcast. Uh, I was driving up with, with good friend and colleague Brian Kimmel. He was the DP of the shoot and, and someone we've had here actually as a guest here on the show. And we were talking about this idea of documentary filmmaking for a living. Now, Brian's been working in the film and TV industry for uh, 20 plus years. He's a documentary filmmaker himself. And he was asking, he was asking me how many of my guests that have been on the show... How many of them are actually making their living um, entirely supported by their documentary work? And I have to be honest, I, I it took me a minute, and, and I could only really name one or two of my guests, I guess, that fit that description. And, and even then, it was kind of debatable whether or not they truly do fit the description, since my impression was that they were they were still living off of their last film. They, they weren't exactly currently making documentaries per se and making their income in this way um, on a daily basis, if that makes sense. So it got me to thinking about you guys. And I'm wondering, what is it that you're doing to make your ends meet? I realize that there are a group of you who are who are currently students, so, so aren't necessarily making a living of any kind right now. But I'm getting the sense that there is a large percentage percentage of you out there who are in the working force. And you're doing things like working for TV news stations, um, you're shooting corporate video gigs, you're doing wedding videos, uh, you work in reality TV. I've got a doc lifer out of, out of Arizona who's he's a video content producer for the, the city of Phoenix. But what are the rest of you doing? And, and are there any of you out there who are actually living entirely from your documentary work? So as I mentioned, certainly a fairly decent percentage of you in some form or another works in the film and TV industry or does, does some sort of video work. That's how I make my living, either through clients and, and our production company, Barong Films, or as a freelance shooter. And I do still occasionally take on some editing gigs. Um, editing used to be my bread and butter. However, once we, we formed Barong Films as a production company and, and bought a bunch of gear, I decided to, to focus on being, um, being the director DP of Barong Films and, and Steph the producer. Are any of you production company owners yourselves? I'll bet that at least some of you are. I mean, I guess that I know that some of you are, but, but I'm curious if that's a route that, that, that a number of you are, are going or are thinking about doing, which makes me wonder if an episode about owning and operating one's own production company, you know, if that might not be beneficial, beneficial to you guys. As I'm thinking about different ways in which video producers, or, or in this case, I guess documentary filmmakers, are making a living, it, it, it reminds me of a few years back when, when I was on one of my trips to Cambodia um, to do some film work, and it was for a commercial gig, and I'd hired my good friend and colleague Jack to be to be the DP on this shoot. 
And uh, it was one of these days that we were having a conversation over some some breakfast of rice and pork, or bai sai truk, as they would say in, in Cambodia. Uh, we were swapping stories of, of what we'd been up to over the past few years since, since last we'd worked together. Um, I, now, I'd known Jack when he'd lived in Portland, and we were both just really kind of getting our getting our starts in film and TV industry as, as PAs or production assistants. Since that time, Jack had, had spent a year traveling the world, and, and I'd shot Journey to Kathmandu in Nepal. And, and we both had been, you know, slowly but surely advancing our careers, you know, within the industry. I, I at, at that point, I, I'd basically been working as an editor with, with the occasional shooting gig and he relocated back to his hometown in Denver, Colorado. And, uh, he was apparently doing work through his company, Jack Mateer creations as a director DP. And he was also doing some editing himself. And this made me curious. And when I asked him what kinds of videos he was shooting and editing, he told me legal videos. Now I didn't really have any understanding of what he meant by this, so the way he explained it was that he basically would be hired by a team that was representing a case. Um, I'll use as an example uh, an automobile accident victim. Uh, Jack would be contracted out to create a video or videos that that represented what this team felt you know happened to their client, and so he might do a recreation of events. Um, to help visualize for a for for a jury what the client was claiming happened or he might do a video whereby he spends time with the accident victim and films his daily life and and the idea here is to to visually tell the story of how this person's life has been adversely affected by the accident you can probably already see the documentary style of shooting and approach that might be employed with this kind of work i mean you are literally telling someone's story right in fact, our, our doc industry guest for today's episode has done some work in the legal videos realm himself. I'll let him speak to it uh, later on. But I was curious about this kind of video work. So I, I, I did a little research. And from what I could gather, the three primary uses of legal videos were for videotape depositions, um, day in the life videos, and accident scene documentation, which makes sense from anything that I'd heard about doing these sorts of videos. I'm curious, are any of you out there doing this sort of work as part of your doc life? Are any of you out there doing legal videos uh, for a living? I'd be curious to hear more about this. I've got one doc lifer, as I mentioned, who works for the city of Phoenix. I, I believe his job title is media production specialist. Now, he's had a lot of experience doing primarily uh, nonfiction narrative storytelling, including things like news packages mini docs for PBS, reality TV, and feature segments for, for daily magazine broadcasts. In a way, he might be able to argue a case for making his his living entirely doing the documentary work. Now, we're probably you know loosely defining documentary here since we're not talking documentary film work per se, but nonetheless, it sounds like you know his work consists of doing the nonfiction narrative thing. And like I said, he's he's currently working full time as a media production specialist for the city of Phoenix. And and from what I could understand in his emails, he's mostly doing videos for the Phoenix Police Department. Now, again, I don't fully understand what this means to be doing videos for a city police department, but but I'm definitely curious about it. And I imagine it might be something similar to the legal videos thing. You know, are these accident scenes that are being filmed? 
is he or she videotaping you know conversations with people who have been arrested or or is he or she perhaps doing police training videos I, I know that there's definitely video production happening on this level training videos are a big thing uh, it makes me think of years ago I, I worked on some some higher budgeted training videos uh, that were done for the company caterpillar you guys know Cater, caterpillar right um, among other things they work with you know big construction uh, vehicles and on construction sites and and caterpillar had commissioned a production company to 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 do a bunch of safety safety videos and these videos would be used for basically all you know incoming employees of caterpillar I'm guessing well these were interesting videos to be working on they they certainly weren't your typical run of the mill corporate video work Yes, they were going to be used in-house, right? They were um, not going to be outward-facing since, since they'd be used for, for training and safety purposes within the company. But Caterpillar's a big company with, let's just say, not your average resources. So yeah, these were these were bigger budgeted and, and they had real storylines to them. So, so we were essentially making short films that would be used for safety video purposes. I was hired to work in these gigs as a freelancer, and I remember thinking it would actually be pretty cool to have something like Caterpillar or a company like Caterpillar um, as a client for for our own production company because it, it seemed like there was a lot of um, latitude to be be pretty creative, you know, from the story inception through to production and then and then the post production afterwards. Um, it was a larger crew working uh, with well paid talent, so yeah, a pretty cool gig to have if you wanted to, you know, put your storytelling hat on and, and make some pretty creative videos. I'll bet some of you are out there doing this kind of work as well, right? Um, something maybe a little more than your usual corporate video gig. You found a way to tell some stories and make a little money with it. I, I'd like to hear more about that if that's the case. Um, what what other kind of work like this, um, the corporate video work, like maybe training and safety videos, are, are you guys doing? It also makes me think of, of this proliferation of what in the industry is known as lifestyle videos. If you've, if you've not worked on them yourself, I, I guess I'd loosely define a lifestyle video as one that denotes the interests, um, the opinions, and, and behaviors of an individual or a group or, or maybe even a culture. Um, they're often by nature quite documentary looking and, 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 and most likely due to, in fact, the, the approach, which is a very documentary-esque style approach to the, to the filmmaking. Um, this has become really well used and, and, and an accepted aesthetic in the commercial world, which is great for us doc filmmakers. You know, there's companies out there, bigger companies like Red Bull or Gatorade or, or Levi's, and they've made names for themselves using these kinds of lifestyle videos. The idea here is, 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 is you're creating a video that, while certainly backed by a commercial entity, in some way um, you're promoting a product, service, or company, but it's by no means particularly uh, pushing any of these products or service, services in an in a overly commercial fashion. Uh, I'll give you an example. A few summers ago, I worked as a, as a DIT on a shoot in Kodiak, Alaska, and then in Port Townshend, uh, and then in Port Townsend, Washington, it was a crew of about, I don't know, maybe 12 of us, so fairly intimate in size. The company that we were creating videos for was, was Yeti of Yeti Coolers fame. And the production company was basically given the freedom to just shoot interesting, shoot the stories of interesting people in interesting places doing interesting things. 
And, and, and really, probably the only caveat was that the subjects needed to be connected with the outdoors in some way, since, you know, Yeti's target audience tends to be of the active outdoor, you know, adventures variety. And there, also, there needed to be maybe one shot of a Yeti cooler in some frame at some point in the video. And then Yeti's logo would be shown at the very end of the video. And so the advertising impact, the advertising aspect, it was, it was minimal. Um, Really, we were out there making five to seven minute documentary films about people. Uh, we had a couple who were living off the grid uh, on an island in Alaska. We had a group of guys who were who uh, had a, owned a boat and were, and were fishing in the, the Puget Sound. Uh, we had a couple who were chainsaw woodcarvers on Victoria Island. Um, we were telling really cool stories in very documentary fashion in some extraordinary environments. And we were all doing this on Yeti's dime. These were lifestyle videos. And they're huge. They're very popular, like I said, these days. And and the thing is, it's really obvious work for those of us documentary filmmakers. We're like tailor-made for that sort of a thing, aren't we? So these are a few examples of the types of work that, that documentary filmmakers that we can all be doing. Even though, I, I guess this wasn't really what this segment was for. Um, I guess in some ways it was, but but yeah, not entirely. Really, uh, the purpose of this week's opening segment was about finding out a little bit more about you, Doc Lifer. I want to know what it is that you do to keep the, the proverbial food on the table. You know, what sorts of work are you doing? Is it even video work at all? I mean, I, I've talked about various video gigs here that, that a doc filmmaker might be doing, but certainly there's a segment of you out there that 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 doesn't work in video production as your day job at all. Some of you are, are quite happily doing a nine to five gig that's completely unrelated to video or film, and and that it actually serves you better to keep your work and your passions completely separate that 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 keeping the documentary work as the passion work is a preferable way to go which by the way i totally get uh, i have a good friend who i guess would be considered an amateur and i use that you know in quotes amateur photographer again only in the strictest de strictest of definitions that is you know he doesn't make his living by doing photography by day he works taking customer service calls but but in every other definition of the word calling this man an amateur doesn't feel appropriate at all his his work's amazing it's uber inventive it's of extremely high quality and, and his work is shown in galleries all of the time but as he once explained it to me, he didn't want to ever become a professional photographer because he didn't ever want to hate photography. For him, the minute he started taking photography gigs, he was opening himself up to it becoming this idea of work. And he didn't ever want to think of his photography as work. I totally get it. I don't feel the same way myself, obviously, but I absolutely respect where he's coming from. And I wonder if any of you feel this way about your documentary filmmaking, that it's better for you to keep your vocation and your passion completely separate from one another. I'll try and put up some examples of the work that I've described in this segment up in the show notes for this show. Um, I'll get some legal videos and lifestyles videos and training videos up on the site if I can. Remember, to access the show notes, just go to thedocumentarylife.com. And now it's time for the Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week. 
which comes from Jonathan in Michigan. And Jonathan, I hope that I remembered that correctly, by the way, that you were based out of Michigan. Jonathan and I have been emailing back and forth since he first started listening to TDL well over a year ago. Um, He's been a listener for a long time. He'd often listen to the shows on on the day of release while he was on his longish commute to work. I think he was going to or was from Kalamazoo. Am I remembering that correctly, Jonathan? Anyhow, um, Jonathan's a doc lifer who works in television news, and he does his documentary work outside of those hours. Well, I hadn't heard from Jonathan in a while, so it was nice to get an email from him this week. However, he wasn't entirely thrilled about some things that I'd said in a recent episode. It was the segment I'd done on B-roll, episode number 40, incidentally one of my more popular segments. But Jonathan wrote this, Hey Chris, just a refresher, I'm the guy that works in TV news. I finally got around to listening to the B-roll episode, and for the first time, I have an issue. Not really one that matters, but I have to say, the TV news B-roll that I shoot looks great. I've seen better B-roll from TV news than some docs sometimes. Especially if you look at the pieces out of KUSA or King 5 Seattle. Not a big deal, but I just wanted to point out that a lot of TV B-roll looks amazing especially when it's something an experienced photojournalist shoots. Anyway, keep on keeping on. The podcasts have been great as always. Fellow Doc Lifer, Jonathan. First off, Jonathan, thank you so much for writing to me. It's good to hear from you. It had been a while, and I'm sure that was probably my fault, as I've gotten, let's just say, a bit behind on my correspondence, as more and more more of you Doc Lifers uh, write to me. But maybe I'm even more thankful that you wrote me to issue a little pushback on something I'd said. In that episode, I'd spoken a little, I guess you could say a little disparagingly, of the kinds of of B-roll that you might see in local television news. I'd basically been challenging you as a doc filmmaker when shooting your B-roll, think as creatively and as much um, in in the line of a storyteller as possible, and and to stay away from the quick and easy style of a lot of TV news B-roll that I'd become accustomed accustomed to seeing, and truth be told, in the past had, had shot plenty of myself. But as Jonathan has pointed out, perhaps it wasn't entirely fair of me to do so. And I'm sure he's right. Not all TV news B-roll is bad. And I really didn't mean to imply that it was. I was certainly having a little fun with the kind of B-roll that we've all seen on local TV news coverage, you know, where the shooters probably had a grand total of five minutes to get a few shots of coverage before hopping into the truck to get to the next story or or get back to the station in time to, to edit the story. I've certainly seen some good B-roll out there in TV news. In fact, I remember a few years ago when I first started seeing the use of drone aerials being employed uh, in BBC news stories. That kind of changed the production value for TV news for sure. And I've certainly seen good local news TV stories uh, with quality shots as well. So Jonathan, seriously, thank you for pointing that out to me. I'm sure you weren't the only one who felt this way. I'm sure that there were some other listeners out there who probably bristled a little bit uh, when, when I when I poked fun of TV news B-roll. I truly respect the hard work that you guys are all doing. I really do. If you'd like to send me some feedback of your own or offer some topic or doc industry guest suggestions, or maybe you have a question you might like me to answer, just email me at chris at barongfilms.com. And that's chris, C-H-R-I-S, at B-A-R-A-N-G films.com. I'd love to have your comment, suggestion, or question be used as the next Doc Life or Community Question of the Week. When we come back, we're going to sit down and have a conversation with a video maker by the name of Bradford Rogers. He also goes by the name of the Multimedia Ninja. And that, my fellow Doc Lifers, that should give you some idea of what we're about to discuss. 
Bradford Rogers, welcome to The Documentary Life. It's exciting to have you on the show. There's a lot that we can talk about here and, and unravel, but I think the first thing that we might say is uh, is how we met Bradford. Why don't, you, why don't you tell our audience that? Sure. Well, that's Podcast Movement 2017, <laughs> which I don't know about you, but that, that's my first uh, ever sort of thing like that. And uh, it's actually was my 50th birthday during the I convention. Saw that. Yeah, I saw yeah, that. and I, uh, yeah, I kind of put that out on the social media. Yeah, <laughs> but, absolutely. Uh, I, uh, I decided, and much to uh, Tanya's consternation, my <laughs> my longtime girlfriend, uh, I decided not to be at home or on the boat, but to start this second 50 with a bang and, <laughs> and some self improvement. So, I, I went out there to uh, Anaheim, and and we were in a mastermind group. Correct. Uh, which we've continued a little bit since then, and yeah. uh, some some of the members have survived. And, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, that's, There's a few of us uh, left over. Right, right. So uh, that that was a great experience, though, and it's it's definitely shaped my understanding and my thinking about the podcasting. Both my wife Steph and I were were present at at Podcast Move in 2017 in Anaheim, and we walked away with just our our, our minds com- certainly very expanded at the very least. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it was it was a, a exciting exciting few days, handful of days there. Learned a ton. We've we've certainly mentioned it a number of times here already in the past few weeks on the show. In fact, one of our mastermind. One of our fellow masterminders I had on the show right after we got back, and that was entertainment lawyer uh, Gordon Firemark, who was on. Uh, Gordon, yeah, he was on right. a few episodes ago. So, <laughs> so it's exciting to have you guys be be a part of this. So, before we get even further into this, Bradford, I think what I should do is I would love to actually read directly your your bio because I don't feel like I'm going to do it justice when I explain who Bradford <laughs> Rogers is. So, allow me to read this, and then we can uh, we can dissect it a little. bit. Sure. So uh, on your website, which is themultimedianinja.com, and I'm reading directly from your about page, which is fantastic, by the way. I Mm. I love the the opening image of you with this incredibly, incredibly sized soundboard. I have to ask, where where was that photo taken? Please tell me that's in that's in your home somehow. No, no, that's that's my. (laughs) Is that Recording Academy or where is that? Uh, that that is at a a studio of which the owner is the former president of our chapter here for the recording academy. Yeah. That's Tom T K Kid, okay. and his place is called Silent Sound. And I, I love that picture so much. It's actually on the front of one of my credit debit cards. Oh my gosh, I love it. That's so I, yes, I love it. I'm such a poser with that, but. Uh, <laughs> Actually, I shot that picture. I mean, I set up the camera oh, and you? talk okay. about multimedia. Yes. I, I set up the camera and I actually did photography and uh, web design right. for Silent Sound and TK's website Got there. Okay. And that's how that came to be. So Okay, excellent. Well, when we'll get into a little bit of that. So let me let me sure. read here real quickly. Yeah. <laughs> In addition to being an award-winning musician and sailor, Atlanta native Bradford Rogers is a noted multimedia producer, writer, photographer, voiceover artist, and podcaster. And the podcast is is called The Multimedia Ninja, at least the first of what may be more podcasts. <laughs> Bradford is the founder and CEO of World Songs Media. As a member of the House Band for the Recording Academy's Atlanta Chapter Awards Series, Bradford has performed with such multi-platinum artists as Michael McDonald, my dad would love you, James mm. Brown, Michael Bolton, Bobby Valentino, and Vogue's Don Robinson, Sleepy Brown, and CeeLo Green. 
that's quite yeah, a list of characters there, man. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> in his spare time, and he does put spare in quotes, which is great, he enjoys sailing the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean, often solo, accumulating more than 5,000 nautical miles since launching JC Sails in 2013. In January of 2017, he completed a sailing trip to Cuba and back. We, I hopefully will be able to touch upon that. Mm. He just finished production for Timothy P. Green's debut record, Birds Had Flown and served the last four years as chapter governor for the Recording Academy. So there's a lot there that we can talk about. So yeah, let's get into a little bit of this, Bradford. Tell me tell me how some mm-hmm. of this, where it starts. Where does your media experience really, and interest in it really start to begin? Yeah, well, it, it starts from music. It has yeah, to, because I've been doing that, messing around since I was four. Mm-hmm. And technically, I've been a professional since I was 15, yeah. and my first gig in the band I was in in high school was playing for John Glenn's, I believe it was a presidential primary party in Atlanta, which wow. of course he did not win, but <laughs> that was with my, not my high school band, but the, the one I was in called Signals and uh, just went downhill from there. But uh, I've been a professional music at, at times ever since then. And um, I, I think it's interesting that at some point around 2000, mm. I had this idea that most of my friends kind of had the opinion that, well, as long as I, whatever I'm doing, as long as it's music, then we're good. Uh, uh, whether it's crappy club gigs or yeah. soul sucking corporate gigs or mm-hmm. what have you, um, it's as long as it's music, that's fine. And I kind of just had a little epiphany and I had a little. Uh, whack to the side of the head Mm. to jar me there was that, you know what, I'm going to get a day gig Mm. and I'm going to do what I need to do to pay the rent. And then I'm going to be able to take the gigs that I want and say no to the ones I don't. Very nice. That was super powerful. That speaks to a lot of our, of my doc lifers, a a lot of doc Mm -hmm. lifers out there listening because a lot of us have, have a day job and we're doing that really to support, to support our passions. The habit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The dirty habit. (laughs) And in your case, you were doing it essentially to refine the types of, of music gigs that you were taking. It sounds like. Right. Mm hmm. Yeah, then I could say, no, I want to do this jazz festival and not this bar gig. Mm. Or or maybe I do want to do this bar gig because the band is freaking amazing, yeah. even though it's not paying a lot. Yeah. I want to do that. But uh, yeah, around 2000, though, I, I actually started by coincidence, my still girlfriend, Tanya, <laughs> who's a paralegal, she, was confli- she had a vendor conflicted out of a job. And she asked me if I could do it, and it was sort of quasi-multimedia, and I said, sure. Mm. And then I said, oh, damn, how am I going to do this? And I managed to find a way, and I I started doing multimedia for basically high-stakes litigation for a a decade and a half until I got kind of over that. What what does that look like, Bradford? Because here's the thing, and I'm going to stop you for a second here. Sure. The, the term itself, multimedia, right. I think means a lot of things to a lot of different people. For the right. longest time, multimedia for me was associated with quite frankly, art installations. And mm-hmm, uh, and I thought mm-hmm. of this idea of art installations having different, you know, there's a video component, there's a writing component, there's a photography component, there's a costuming component. So I think of that, um, I often um, thought of that as multimedia. That, of course, has changed over the years. But for mm-hmm. you at that time, what you're describing at this particular gig, what what is multimedia looking like? 
Right. And in fact, I had that same, I have had that same art installation picture in mind at the, uh, at the, at the time in the litigation job, the multimedia pretty much meant, uh, video playback, um, yeah. interactive documents, um, sometimes interact, um, interactive, uh, video, like I did an animation for a railroad case where they wanted to play back a, a train going through this nuclear waste area and, and be able to control the back and forth and do different things. So we created in a 3d program, we did that. And then I went in flash and did some interactivity, but in terms of the, wow. the litigation gig, it was mainly, you know, deposition, video recording, uh, playback of video and documents in court, like if they'd say, oh. well, Mr. Parkhurst, you're saying on the stand today that you weren't there on April 14th at the fire, but uh, Bradford, can you cue up clip 17? And uh, Mr. Parkhurst, you may remember in your uh, recorded sworn testimony earlier mm. that you said the exact opposite right here. Mm, 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 mm. Right. So that was kind of the main bread and butter right there of, of that job. So how long do you end up doing this, Bradford? About 15 years. No way. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. In fact, I still, even though I've rolled up that company, um, I had a little S-Corp called Elit, but yeah. even though I've rolled up that company, I actually had a job last week where they're <laughs> like, can you please make this video stuff ready for a hearing we're doing? And uh, I was like, well, this week's looking a little empty. I suppose I could. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> but, of course, uh, of course. I, I, I know how it goes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's funny. I have a, a good friend and colleague of mine, Jack. And uh, in fact, I've gone to overseas to Cambodia and worked with Jack a couple of times. He's, mm -hmm. he's a DP based out of, uh, he's currently based out of Denver, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And Jack's bread and butter has been doing uh, really is videos and scenarios for exactly what you're talking about in, in mm -hmm. litigation. Um, sure. I don't. In fact, I, I'm spacing the name of, 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 of his company at the moment, but that's what he's been doing for a handful of years now is, from what I understand, he actually is filming scenarios and he's talking with, you know, um, say a defendant or a prosecutor, depending on which side he is, I, I suppose. And, mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, he's helping create a story in the courtroom via, uh -huh. via video. And uh, sure. I'm sure you, you know what that's all about. Yeah, there's a lot of guys, in fact, doing a day in the life video when you have a, you know, a case where uh, somebody's been injured or harmed, mm. and you, you're showing what their day to day looks like and how terrible it is, and and all that kind of stuff. I bet um, that's what he does. I bet that's a that, big chunk of what he does. Yeah, that's what I was guessing when you first mentioned it. And, yeah, and then I uh, even before that, I was actually working for this gentleman in the audio. Uh, situation. I'd, I'd been a performer, musician, performing musician for a while. Mm. And I happened to get a job in this guy's home studio. And this is a guy that made a product that uh, promised to eliminate vocals from records so that oh, you could wow. sing along. Yes, right, of course. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, uh, and he, he had this whole enterprise of um, manufacturing and selling some of these things and related <laughs> items in his house. Wow. And then he had a studio upstairs and back at that time, and he wanted to be a, a not some sort of noted musical performer, mm. but he had a studio up there and that's back when we had Cakewalk uh, and, uh, back when it hardly even had audio tracks on it, it mm. was more of a MIDI thing. And yeah. at the same time I was starting to record people in my home studio where I had a, a 16 track half inch reel to reel and maybe a 16 channel board. And so I was doing a lot of that audio, but then I started messing around with Photoshop and 
some of these other and Macromedia Director yeah. and making little uh, business card CDs that auto played and you could click on a thing to email me or click on a thing to see a video clip and about that time I had this idea that there was no title as such at the time but I thought you know there must be some sort of thing that's going to come about that would just be called multimedia producer yeah right where it's like you know it doesn't matter if it needs audio or music or graphics or uh, motion graphics or 3d or interactivity or whatever but you just do what it takes to produce the thing that's needed and it's across all these disciplines and you play around and you have fun and that's that's what i had in the back of my mind mm. and i think the um you know the litigation gig kind of gave me a chance to do a lot keep doing a lot of the video and video editing and some 3d and some audio stuff and not as much music but i was still doing that on the side and around the time that i yeah i may have to i may have to retake that one <laughs> no that's totally fine absolutely uh, yeah it it occurs to me probably the the catalyst for the the most recent change in wrapping up the other business hmm was both going to China and getting a blood clot in my foot. And uh, my mom passed shortly thereafter that. And shortly after that, I got JC Sales, my sailboat. And this whole, I had this whole sort of come to Jesus moment yeah. where I'm thinking, you know, life can be short and I want to be more about quality of life and I want to have a nice life and do more of what I want to do. And I hear all these people that are, saying, well, I don't work a day in my life because I do what I love. So <laughs> that's when I started getting a little burnout on the litigation thing, and I just wanted to roll it up and go to a more creative multimedia stuff. So you have some come to, as you described it, the come to yeah. Jesus moment, right? And <laughs> as we say in the South. Yeah. Totally, totally. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you realize that, you know what, I want to do something or, or I want to be doing things in my life that fe are feeding the soul and things that right. uh, I want to be doing things in life that, that I love. Where does that lead well, you to? Yeah, just on a functional level, I, that may be helpful for some people is that I actually started getting on Upwork, mm. which I had, I don't know if you're familiar, it's an online portal for clients and freelancers finding each other. And it, it used to be, they combined Elance and Odesk. Okay. And so that's, that's now called Upwork. And it has been really good for me. I I spent like $25 on a little course on how to be good with Upwork. Really? Yeah, and it, it pointed out that, you know, you don't have to actually compete with all the $5 an hour hose and clothes vendors that yeah. are doing video or audio editing or what have you from different places in the world. You can position yourself, especially to U.S. and sometimes U.K. and clients, Australian yeah. clients in particular, as somebody that is you you go through a little more involved getting to know them before you get hired right. and you demonstrate that you are actually looking out for their whole picture that you don't need a lot of hand holding they're not going to waste time getting quote unquote product that doesn't actually serve their needs mm. and develop a um perfect rating and I knock on wood I'm knocking on my head here <laughs> you, uh, I actually still have a perfect five-star 100% satisfaction glowing reviews kind of thing on there so you can actually position yourself as a premium vendor and short story is I've I've gotten onto Upwork and I still have some local clients here in Atlanta 
that I know through the recording academy yeah. and various things. And then I have the little dribble of occasional stuff I'll still do from the litigation end. Yeah. But that is actually after a dip for a while that mm. has allowed me to actually kind of get to, if not quite as lucrative as the litigation stuff, it's, it's at least getting to where it needs to be. So I can actually, part of my strategy was also to get where I can work from my laptop on the boat or, you know, at a bar and somewhere with palm trees or what have you. So with video editing and audio editing and even record production, yeah. as far as the editing part, yeah. you probably don't want to mix with headphones if you can help it. But, uh, <laughs> You can definitely do a lot of anything from the demo phase to the editing phase in in your laptop from wherever you're at. Right, so that right. was part of the actually kind of conscious strategy between Upwork and the remote working and all that good ah, stuff. So I love it. Okay. I, yeah, I, I want to be a hashtag digital nomad. Yep. Yep. I love it. And I love the hashtag. Uh, <laughs> is Upwork is Upwork something that you would recommend to some of my listeners? I've got plenty of, of, of editors out there that are listening, plenty of shooters. Um, yeah. For my documentary filmmaking audience, what are these? So what, what do you think these scenarios are? What are the jobs um, right. that would be uh, available uh, on something like Upwork? Right. So I, I would have two caveats. One is I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for people that are in what I would call from music, the tracking phase, yes. which would be video shooters, yep. photographers, as, as much as say editors or yep. motion graphics people. Post people. Yeah, and so that it's a little more um, helpful if you're in that bag where you don't have to be on location. But yep. that said, that there are a sense. lot of people that do use it for that. Okay. And there, I see a lot of photographers and videographers on there and all that good stuff. And the other thing is I would recommend that course, and I I don't have it on hand. I can probably get it for you. It's um, yeah, please do. Yeah, it's on Udemy, I think, and it's called, you know, How to Kick Butt on Upwork or something. Okay, cool. And, you know, for 25 bucks that I spent on that, I found that to be hugely valuable okay. because I guess the third caveat is you don't want to jump in there and just be competing with all the the commoditized people that are Oof. doing, you know, $5, $10, hour, $15. Fiverr type stuff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 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 Al although I did go in there in my first couple of gigs, I did a $5 job, yeah. my very first one. Yeah. And I said, I'll do this under conditions that if we're all happy, I'm getting a five-star review and a glowing rating. And that was like a Photoshop labels for some product. And then I did a, like a hundred and $25, $150 follow-up with the same person, yeah. same conditions. Yeah. Then I did a, a post-production job for an Indian music video where they needed some hair and dust removal from they had had on the lens. Oh, it was a beautiful, wow. beautiful, yeah, beautiful video though, except for a couple of flaws in some places or several. And I did, I think that was 125 <laughs> or 150 bucks, but I did like 40 hours. It had to have been. That. Yeah, it had to have been. I mean, you're going frame <laughs> frame by frame. Did you just use After Effects and go frame by frame or? or you know, I had you to know? use like two or three different methods. God. One being, uh, one is you can go, you can turn a, a sequence of frames into a... Um, sequence of frames in Photoshop, a yes. sequence of stills. Yeah. Can you still do that? I, I remember years ago when that was when they had come out with that and I thought, wow, this will be a game changer. This is unbelievable. Yeah. And nobody, nobody I knew ever used it. Right. Yeah, I, I was one, yeah. but uh, they, they did have that FLM extension okay. for film strip. I don't, I think now I had to change it into a TIFF sequence. Yeah. 
And then what I would do is use the healing brush or something and yeah. generate some sort of action. Action. You make an action out of it, sort of automates yeah. the process. Yeah, but the thing is, you know, every few frames it would shift. <laughs> of course, you need to, you know, you could run it maybe three frames yeah. at a time, <laughs> yeah. and then you got to redo it. Yeah. So. Anyway, but that that was another, you know, if you like this, I need a perfect rating and a great review. We did that, and so now I'm up to my stated rate on there is one twenty-five an hour. Good, and good, I'm, right, right. I, yeah, I have some local friends that you know have helped me along the way that. If they come in and, and ask if I can do something, I'll say, well, you, maybe we just don't count a couple of hours, mm. but I'm not going to show any rate lower than that. That is for sure. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Very nice. Very nice. So it's <laughs> it's worked for you, but it takes some work to to to, to make it work, and, uh, and you've been able yeah, to do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Wednesday, northeast winds around 20 knots, So, Arma is a Category 5 in the Lesser Antilles, and we're getting the hell out of Dodge. Even though it's several days in advance, we really don't know what's going to happen, but right now it looks like Tampa is in the bullseye for Monday, and we don't really want to be in the area then, and traffic is going to be crazy, we understand, so we're going to tie up the boat and uh, head for Atlanta, where we hope our house doesn't flood. So, so Bradford, I know you as uh, initially as a podcaster. Of course, we mentioned at the outset of the program meeting you at Podcast Movement 2017. And so I know you as a podcaster, uh, which means I know you also as a storyteller. How did, how did podcasting come about as, uh, as part of what you were doing? I, I can trace it back to it was around the time I got the boat yeah. and I, I bought her, I say her, up, up here at Lake Lanier yep. near Atlanta and uh, renamed her to JC Sales. Yeah. And she's now down in the St. Pete area. But that suddenly gave me an eight hour commute from home to down there instead of like 30, 40 minutes up to Lake Lanier. Ah, uh, right. And on the way down to Florida, the first couple of times I said, maybe I should check out this podcast thing. And I think the first thing I actually checked out for whatever reason was the Digital Convergence podcast. Ah, interesting. With Carl Olson, a fellow Atlantan. And then I got into the, once I started saying, hey, this podcast thing is kind of cool and useful, especially in these situations. Right. And so I got turned on to podcast answer man, Cliff Ravenscraft, um, and uh, started he started getting me excited about podcasting and, and the value, which started going off like fire bells in my head about establishing credibility, potentially drawing more clientele, and all that sort of good thing based on podcasting. And that's when I decided to turn these diverse, turn this rusty Swiss army knife of skills into some sort of coherent theme and talk to people about it and start <laughs> actually enhancing my resume and my credibility. And, and uh, also just, it was a lab for audio experimentation and, and workflow experimentation. So here's the situation. Irma is one of the most powerful storms ever recorded on the planet. And we decided we should get the hell out of its way. Uh, so you ready? I think so. 
Before Tanya and I left, I had the motor mounts under the engine replaced because it was vibrating excessively. Hopefully that repair won't be sitting at the bottom of the marina or in a tree. Feels better to me. But the latest average forecast track has a storm passing just a few tens of miles east of us. Some forecasts have it even west of us, which would be disastrous. Something that I that I took from podcast movement, as well as the types of podcasts that I had been listening to over the past couple of months, kind of brought me to some similar thoughts as yourself. And mm-hmm. uh, there is one particularly well-known story now, one of the more listened to podcasts that actually emanated from your, your home state of, of Georgia, mm. uh, uh, up in Vanished. And the, the creator of Up and Vanist and, and the host of that, Payne Lindsay is his name. You know, here, here he has created a program whereby, you know, he, is a, he was a documentary filmmaker. What he ended up creating, and he made a name for, for himself by essentially doing investigative journalism and creating a series uh, via his podcast. And it's a very, mm-hmm. very documentary type style of podcast. And his is one of many. There are, there are so many out there now right. and they're becoming more and more popular in, 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 in particular, the true crime genre, but there's so many options here, right? With, right. with documentary type storytelling, NPR has been at the forefront of this for years. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, there are a lot of very intriguing possibilities out there. I'm thinking about it a lot now. Um, it's interesting to take the video, to take the shooting component out of it, and and what happens? How does does it become easier? How does it become easier? How does it change the style of your storytelling? Uh, I'm very fascinated by it, Bradford, because a lot of my background early on was in radio, and so right, even right. coming to podcast. Um, as a, as a, as a medium was a return to roots in some ways for for me, and so and so this is more of that. This is like that old time radio theater, right? Taken to like right. you know three or something. And yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I I am down with it. I am with you, and, and I and I get it. And uh, it's very exciting. And I think a number of my listeners probably listen to a lot of these types of podcasts, um, especially you know the documentary filmmakers, because you can make it's almost as if you can make a documentary film or documentary film series through podcast right right and then the difference is that instead of showing them the visuals you let them imagine the visuals and in some ways it's it's even more powerful because it requires a work on their part (laughs) that's right that's right it's i'd much rather read a stephen king novel than see a stephen king adapted film right right. (laughs) that seems to almost always hold true and there's the obvious thing that at if you're in the gym or driving or something, you can't really watch a documentary. That's right. Safely, safely anyway. That's so, right. That's right. Um, yeah, I, I was really interested in it. Actually, on the way home, I listened to, strangely, uh, Missing Richard Simmons. Ah, <laughs> yes. Another which, one of the famous ones. <laughs> yeah. And interesting. I just happened to see some postcards of it or something at Podcast Movement, and the, the little cover graphic caught my eye, and I had heard the story that he'd gone missing, and you know, normally I'm... I have not been a large fan of Richard Simmons. <laughs> I've always found him to be extremely obnoxious and not my cup of tea. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Um, but that was a compelling little series there. And the way that they used the audio and the interviews and the, well, there were no interviews with him. Right. But, you know, sound pieces and interviews with other people. And uh, I found that really compelling. And I've, I've heard some of this NPR 
I would say NPR style, but it was probably on NPR yeah, right. stuff before. And, and this is really ringing a bell, especially given that I'm a musical audio background to begin with. Bradford, I'm curious, you know, one of the things, you know, when I had met you uh, at the Masterminds uh, class, you had mentioned potentially adding a second uh, podcast to your repertoire. And it's and it was tentatively titled something like um, How Not to Sail a Boat. And, uh, right. and if I got that wrong, please correct me. Uh, my, my question to you, Bradford, is do you see, is that still on the docket for you? And if so, do you see this storytelling, this this recent storytelling sort of way of, of your podcast, do you, do you see that happening with that program? Or do you see the storytelling um, really happening with the Multimedia Ninja podcast? That is a great question because that's actually been figured figuring into my thinking as well. And when we were down in Florida, I was actually there in part to uh, video some five-minute to five to seven-minute episodes of How Not to Sail mm. uh, for cruisingoutpost.com, potentially. Ah, uh, okay. The, the uh, large editor in charge there, slash owner, slash uh, whatever he is, uh, whose, whose name is Bob Bitchin. <laughs> no way. Awesome, yeah, awesome guy, former biker, uh, lots of great stories, and, and they're – previous publication got me into sailing mm. and and or cruising uh, by sail and traveling places in in a sailboat but i had hit him up about this idea i was going to do a podcast to support my book how not to sail yeah and he basically we ended up where he suggested maybe them hosting five to seven minute episodes of this uh, in video form on their website. I see. Okay. Uh, and he also turned me on to a gentleman at what was trade winds radio, which is now pirate radio, Dan Horn. And Dan is talking with me about maybe a 30 minute, um, weekly episode on that network, as well as two or three, two to three minute bits during the week. Wow. Okay. Um, short story is I, I don't know exactly how the storytelling fits into all of that yeah, yet. Yeah. Cause I, I had a certain little format for this idea and that's getting stretched all around in what could potentially be very good ways. Um, but at the same time, I'm getting more excited about audio and less about the video. That's right. The, that's right. Yeah. The, the video chunk was the thing that I was initially talking to Bob about. So, um, well, I have no no problem producing a bunch of those for them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm but, sure. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I wouldn't either. I, I get it. Yeah, uh, but workflow wise too, the the radio, uh, what is now pirate radio, this is awesome with something like Hindenburg mm. because I can produce a show, have a profile for their FTP on there, and say here you go, upload it, bam, and you know, soup to nuts. And we focused on the audio and that's a brilliant thing. Mm, mm, mm. I love it. And, 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 and I'm, I have to say that, uh, I secretly hope that uh, there will be a, pod, a separate podcast out of this. Uh, but though, however, you decide to tell the story of, of how not to sail a boat, uh, right? <laughs> uh, count me in because I, I've had a um, and my wife can attest to this the past couple of years for and I can't really even point as to why and when and how this happened, but I've secretly become slightly obsessed with the idea of um, of boating, uh, right. sailboating, and uh, and I I don't I haven't the first clue clue how one goes about doing this or getting into Perfect. it but for some reason <laughs> i've romanticized this and uh so when i heard you you know say that at at, at our master at our masterminds i just thought oh 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 oh! i hope he does that podcast i'm so curious about that right. um I, 
maybe it's because I finally, for the first time in my life, last year I read Moby Dick, and it did take me about a year. Ah, uh, but yes. but not because it's so lengthy, but because I actually loved every damn sentence of it. Right. Uh, especially yeah. the first one. <laughs> especially the first that's, one. Yeah, right. That's maybe the best opener ever. Call me Ishmael. Oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> maybe maybe that's your maybe that's the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, that and uh, I think I had, had asked you about. Uh, Thor, Thor, Thor Heyerdahl, I think is oh, how yeah, you pronounce yeah. his Kantiki. name. The Kantiki guy, yeah. yeah so yeah. I read a few of his books and uh, really, really became fascinated with uh, with with that whole that whole thing. So, um, so yeah. If you if you read the long way by, I'm probably butchering his name, but Bernard Mort. Yeah, uh, that that'll get you hooked. But. Uh, that's incredible because I have a a very good friend of mine, and and I swear to you, Bradford, this is the truth. A very good friend of mine who. Uh, uh, he he's a translator uh, who, who operates down in um, out of based out of DC, but I, I've met him on a number of jobs uh, uh, that I've shot overseas. And you guys are doppelgangers. And uh, the crazy thing is, he also is a big sailboat guy. And that the right. one you just the, the book you just mentioned is the very first one he recommended to me. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Even in the translation, it's awesome. Even, so yes, I, I can, yes. I can only imagine the French. <laughs> That's exactly exactly it. You actually raise something that that occurs in both of my current podcast and the potential one, and I think it's something I see a lot of people using, and it doesn't come off as recycled at all. But this whole idea of I'm not telling you that I'm an expert on how to do this. I'm just telling you I know a zillion ways not to do it. Yeah. And I want to share those with you so that you don't waste your time, get injured, or whatever. That might be why I did the documentary life, let's be honest. <laughs> mm, right, right on, yeah. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Bradford, this has been a tremendous conversation. I, I could go on and on. Tell us where we can go to listen to your podcast once again, if you could, please. Sure, that is themultimedianinja.com. And I highly recommend uh, you can just go to slash six, eight, or you can go to the multimedianinja.com slash five, five for the Cuba trip. And six, eight is the, the Hurricane Irma, which is audio only. And th- I'd say those are the top two uh, episodes. And I'm, it's kind of a religion with me. Everywhere else you can find me is on Twitter at at Bradford Rogers, Instagram at Bradford Rogers. I have a BradfordRogers.com. Um, the only thing that's different is the podcast is TheMultimediaNinja.com. Indeed. Thank you so much, Bradford, for, for coming yes, on the sir. documentary life. I, I had a blast, and uh, we'll talk to you soon, I'm sure. Absolutely. Thank you. Don't forget, if you're interested in a guide to help you navigate the fundamental aspects of doc filmmaking, the things that every doc filmmaker should know, then get our free doc filmmaking course, The Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist, by going to thedocumentarylife.com courses. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.